Continuing the theme that we left off last week's programme, that was Busted, Thunderbirds Are Go. I think, Daniel, I would say a nice song, shame about the film, really. I'm more or less inclined to agree, yes. Yes, yes. I think the puppet versions were better, but we will we will come back to that in weeks to come. Anyway, a very good morning to Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard. Back in, back in body as well as spirit. Yes, for yes. one week only. <laughs> yes, indeed. But, uh, yes, we're having a, having a week off. Um, yeah. And then we're back in two weeks' time. And we'll talk more about the show in two weeks' time a little later on. Mm-hmm. Shall we uh, have a look what's going on the local cinemas first? I think we should. It's a good right. place to start. We'll start in Annick, the Playhouse, just the one to talk about, which is on Wednesday evening at 7.30. It's Oranges and Sunshine. Now, that looks quite interesting, because it's directed by Jim Loach, who is the son of Ken Loach, and uh, therefore has you know, some kind of credibility in terms of making it you know, kind of down-to-earth and interesting. I mean, it's a story about... Uh, about I think it's um, Emily Watson, who's a very good actress, plays a social worker who um, discovers this um, covert program about uh, children being deported to Australia. No, to uh, apparently there was a quote from Jim Loach saying that it was cheaper to buy a one-way ticket for orphans to go to Australia than to for the state to look after them for a year. And it's sort of about her uncovering that. So it's not going to be the easiest thing to watch. No, yeah. in the same way that a lot of Ken Loach's stuff is a bit tough, but it should be quite interesting and it'll feel quite real. So, Certificate 15 on that one, I think we need to say, don't we? Yeah, well, no. It's, um, and the box office number is Annick 510785. Meanwhile, up at Maltings in Berwick, Monday afternoon, 1pm, is Water for Elephants. Which uh, I think we've discussed is, is a kind of divisive film, depending on how old you are. I think that um, if you're a fan of old-fashioned melodramas, you'll love it. If you're someone who gets a bit bored by things like Gone with the Wind, which I have to confess I do, then you will find yourself quite... You'll find it quite hard to sit through all the moments when Christoph Waltz isn't on screen. Right. Meanwhile, on Wednesdays, um, the Maltings have started a new Wednesday weekly film series it says here called niche wednesdays uh and they started with a three-week retrospective um of films by Werner herzog mm-hmm. started last week with i'm going to get this wrong aguia wrath of god aguia wrath of god this wednesday nosferatu the vampire yeah which is his remake of the the 1922 vampire film because the uh, the famous story behind that was it was made around the same time as uh the, the Dracula films with Bela Lugosi, but because they couldn't use um, they couldn't use the name Dracula because the Hollywood versions had sort of you know sort of copyrighted the name, so they had to call the the uh, the creature Doctor Orlock, and uh, <laughs> it's it's a very strange film, the 1920s version. I think that Herzog's film isn't as good, but it has its own peculiar quality about it which sort of makes it worth watching right <clears throat> and as we're not here next saturday uh a week on wednesday the 29th of june Fitzcarraldo. yes which is um one of his more famous films about uh a, i think he's uh, an explorer in the, the latin american jungles famous for the fact that during the production of it um Werner herzog effectively had an entire ocean liner towed halfway over a mountain <laughs> yes Nice subtle scene, be yes. then. No, it's right. great production. Yeah. Also, if we're if we're doing next week, can I say on? I think it's this time next week, so Saturday. Uh, they're showing Source Code at the Playhouse, which, oh. for my money, is still one of the best films of this year. So, if you didn't get to see it in, no, in inverted commas, proper cinemas, that'll be very good. And that's the uh, Facebook one, isn't it? Is that right? No, no that's Social Network. That oh. was two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> No. Source Code's the new film from Duncan Jones with Jake Gyllenhaal, and right. it's a great science okay. fiction film. And finishing the Herzog um, diary, Wednesday the 6th of July, his most recent one, C- Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Now, I would presume that's showing in 2D rather than 3D. I presume so, yes. Yes, yeah, but it's better in 2D, apparently. Right. Okay, 
Fine, so that's the local cinemas. Morton's box office number, by the way, is 01289 Um Right, the top ten. Yes. Now we've finally found it. <laughs> <laughs> so all I could find was a top seven, but you found uh, numbers eight, nine and ten yes, for us. I do the research of this bit, you just talk. Yes, right, okay. <laughs> Number ten is Rio. Which has been around for ages and ages and ages, and it's clearly struck a chord with its target audience. Now, my opinion is the same, it's fine, but the 3D is unnecessary and the story itself is unremarkable. Okay, number nine is Mother's Day. Which has very little going for it. I mean, it's a nasty remake of an equally nasty trauma film from the 1980s, notable only for the half-decent performance of Rebecca de Mornay. I mean, I don't have any problem with the home invasion genre that was started with you know, funny games and since continued on with well, the remake of Funny Games and Cherry Tree Lane, but Rebecca de Mornay is a better actress than her recent work would lead you to believe. Right. Now, I'm going to see if I can read my script here. Ready at number eight. Did Which, I get that right? Yes. <laughs> it's unusual for a Bollywood film to sort of hang around in the top ten for more than one week. Um, I think it's largely because um, everything outside pretty much the top five has taken very little money. Um, no, to be honest, it doesn't look that good, but no, I'm not an expert on Bollywood at all, so if anyone wants to sort of get in touch and correct me on that, I'll be, that'll be greatly appreciated. We'd love to hear from you. Now, good morning to my friend Sue, if she's listening this morning, because she, uh, posted on Facebook after she went to see Senna, what a brilliant film it was, and I think you agreed. I you? think it's really great, it's one of the best films of this year, and I'm actually really glad that it's still in the top ten and taking money. I mean, I don't think you have to be a fan of Formula One to get it, and Asif Kapadia, who directed the film manages to take something which is essentially televisual and make it cinematic. It's a fascinating story about passion, about religious devotion, because Senna was a devoted Catholic, and about the actual act of racing, not just actually getting in the car, but the actual desire to do it. And the characters are really interesting. I was um, out with Paul Young last night, who used to host this program, because we went yeah. to see Unknown at the Playhouse, which was, okay, it was a bit dull. But we got talking about the relationship between Senna and Prost, and sort of how how we saw their differences and there's a, there's a very interesting discussion at the centerpiece of the film about is it possible to admire someone you have absolute contempt for and i think if you see senna you'll kind of understand yeah. you know how prost felt about senna and vice versa yes do any of those people like each other yes <laughs> <laughs> seems to come with the uh with the sport doesn't yes. it anyway interestingly i think the top six are all sequels isn't that fascinating yeah you're right actually well x-men is technically a prequel but <laughs> yeah, same fine. difference yes Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2. Which is alright. I mean, it's middle-of-the-road, child-friendly slapstick, and it's nothing to write home about, but if you've got young children, that's the one to take them to see. Right. Number five is Honey 2. Which is a dance film, and it looks every bit as cliched as all the other dance films we've had recently, including the Step Up series. Um, apparently the remake of Footloose is coming out later this year, so that's the thing that I suppose all this is gearing up for, although Footloose wasn't that good the first time round, so I don't know what they're bothering about, really. Right. Pirates of the Caribbean, number 87, or is it number four? <laughs> number four. In either case, it's utter rubbish. It's notable only for the fact that it's dropping down the charts quite quickly and it's taking more money in 2D than 3D, which proves that 3D is just a gimmick. Right. X-Men First Class, I think you're a bit happy about this one. Yeah, I, th I think it's fine. I mean, it suffers from the usual X-Men problems, which are there's too many characters and there's the general duplicity in comics of the men can walk around with massive muscles and look fantastic while the women have to be in their underwear. And I'm... Although you can make arguments all you like about, you know, cinema by boys, foy boys, which I think is the point you raised when we reviewed yeah. this a couple of weeks ago. And I'm still not entirely happy with that, but I think Matthew Vaughan's a pretty good director. He made um, Kick-Ass before this, which is a much edgier, much more interesting film. And it's definitely better than X-Men 3 because, you know, unlike Brett Ratner, Matthew Vaughan can actually direct. 
but so I think if you're if you're unfamiliar with the X Men series, it's the place to start because it does go back to the beginning. But you might be disappointed if you were a fan of Brian Singer's earlier efforts. Right. Uh, next one, staying there forever, isn't it? Hangover Part Two, which is also utter rubbish, and it's essentially the first film rehashed with a bit more racism. And unlike the f unlike the first one, it still isn't funny. Right. But a fun one at number one, Kung Fu Panda Two, which is okay. I mean, although I think the funniest thing about it was um, the press interview that Angelina Jolie gave at the Cannes Film Festival because they often have Cannes used to be you know an, only an artistic festival but nowadays they like to have a big sort of blockbuster to kick off the festival because last year it was Robin Hood and this year it was Kung Fu Panda 2 and Angelina Jolie gave an interview on the red carpet in which she said something along the lines of oh yes I did it because it raises a lot of very profound and serious issues and there's been a lot written about whether or not she was joking or whether she actually thinks it I mean where do you stand on Angelina Jolie do you like her as I think she's great yes yeah. yes I mean, they, I mean we mentioned last week isn't it it's a who's who of acting on some of these um, some of these ones isn't it yeah so. I mean Angelina Jolie does She's an irritating in a way because she does do a lot of fluff that is, well, frankly beneath her. But when she is, she does serious work like Mighty Heart and Changeling and so forth, she is really terrific. And uh, it might be that uh, in the same way as her and Brad Pitt don't work at the same time, you know, when one's making a film the other's looking after the kids, it might be that this was her turn to make a silly film while Brad Pitt was doing The Tree of Life, which is coming yeah. out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Right, so recommendations this week, other than the local films, which uh, all sound pretty good this week, don't they? Yeah, they're not too bad. I mean, I think Senna, obviously, and um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2, if you've got children, and the only other recommendation is X-Men, but prepare to be disappointed if you're a fan of the earlier films. But go and enjoy Senna, because it sounds a great film. Senna is really great. Right. Lionheart Radio. And now, be very, very frightened. something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. It takes us over. And it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? You can beat one of those things! Another one there from the uh, the school of unsettled uh, trailers, but uh, <laughs> that was slightly better than last week, though. Yes, but quite a scary one, isn't it? Very scary, and yes. no, I think there's no arguments with it. We are, of course, talking about the thing. This week's cult film, 1982 horror film directed by John Carpenter, whom we've we've covered in some yeah. detail over the past weeks. I think we're both fans of his work. Um, ostensibly a remake of the 1951 Howard Hawks film, The Thing from Another World, which was itself based on the short story by John W. Campbell Jr. called Who Goes 
Rose there, uh, which was written in the 1930s. Except 1950s horror films were never quite scary, were they? Whereas well, this is the this thing. One's, this one's slightly scarier. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to Carpenter's relationship with the original once I've sort of set up the plot, because it is quite interesting. Um, this is the first installment in what's known as Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy, which is a series of films that he made in the 80s and 90s, in which the central idea is you have a threat which, if it's fully unleashed from the confines of the film, could destroy the whole world. I mean, the subsequent episodes are Prince of Darkness, in which it's, it's sort of like a... Do you remember the Quatermass experiment? Yes, particularly I do, Qua yes. Particularly Quatermass yes. and the Pit, in yes. which it was all about you know, evil as a physical form. Yeah. Well, Prince of Darkness does uh, that in the sense of having the the devil or the essence of evil encased in like a swirling green canister in the bottom of an abandoned church. You know, it's a yeah. bit rubbish, to be honest, but you no. Know, interesting ideas badly executed. And then later on, he made a film called In the Mouth of Madness, which is a sort of homage to H.P. Lovecraft, and it tries to do the meta thing. Very good performance by Sam Neill, but it is all over the place. Um, made on a budget of about $50 million, this was Carpenter's first studio venture as so opposed to... That's a lot to of money for him, isn't this it? Was the most ex yes, this is the most expensive film he'd made up until this point. Normally about 50000 weren't they? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, if you can work with small, you can just about work with big. So, it was his first studio venture, because previous, up until then, he was an independent filmmaker, and after Big Trouble in Little China, he went back to that and sort of never returned to studio work for well, if you've seen Big Trouble in Little China, you'll understand, because again, that's one of his films that just doesn't yeah. work. Opened on the same day as Blade Runner, so if I'd been arrived there, I would have been absolutely thrilled. It bombed, however, when first released. It took something like less than half its budget in cinemas, to which, which Carpenter put down to the recent success of VT, because I think they yeah. were released within two months of each other, so, you know, on the one hand, Happy Aliens, and a film about divorce, and on oh, the other hand, oh. The Thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. This film actually led, as a result of no, underperforming with his first studio effort, uh, Carpenter actually made Starman two years after this as a, as a way of, in his words, kind of saying sorry, it's like, I'm not that bad, I can actually do a love story, and Starman took money, and rightly so, because it's a really good film. An extra little bit of trivia before we set up the plot, um, apparently this is viewed by all the members of the Winter Crew at the US South Pole Station, and they watch it traditionally on a double bill with a Shining, just after the last plane has left. <laughs> so Happy cheery night for <laughs> well, you. Well, yeah, just to get the claustrophobia <laughs> stuff out of the way, so that you yes. can settle in for six months. And I wonder if they kind of, you know, when the film is finished, they just sit there oddly. It's like, right, get the blood tests out. Let's see who's who. Yes. So the plot is it's set in present-day Antarctica and an American weather station. At the beginning of the film, a dog, I think it's an Alaskan husky, is seen uh, running across the snow as a helicopter attempts to shoot it, and it runs into the U.S. camp as the helicopter, which is um, controlled by a Norwegian team. Um, they accidentally set off a flare, and it explodes. And a team of scientists uh, from the American base, led by R.J. McCready, played by Kurt Russell in what I think is his finest performance, uh, they go to investigate the Norwegian camp and discover that it's deserted, a lot of it's been destroyed, and there's no one left alive. And as they look at all the... as they find more bodies, they find that a lot of the people in there have actually committed suicide, so it's Gosh. a question of you know, what's going on here. They discover that the cadaver of a creature who seems to be half human, half something, not quite sure, they bring it back to be examined. Eventually, things start happening to the dog that's been sort of put in quarantine, and it turns out that there is an alien in their midst who is Ooh. a microscopic parasite that can mimic anything, and it's a question of who's the thing and who isn't. Ah. So, how's that for a setup? Good setup. Thank you. So, just in, in the same, it's an unusual comparison, but stay with me, just in the same way that 
the Shawshank Redemption has become like the poster child of Christianity in films, in the sense that it didn't take much money in the mainstream, but it's been embraced by, you no know, church communities, you no know, and Christians, myself included. There are very true sci-fi fans who don't go slightly weak at the knees at the mention of John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, I think it's it's second only to Alien in terms of, you no, know, in the pantheon of sci-fi horror. Yeah. And, yeah. You no, know, for my money, it comes quite close, despite the fact that I'm a huge Ridley Scott fan. In terms of its relationship with the original, Carpenter was a big fan of The Thing from Another World and, and of Howard Hawks' works in general. And actually, if you um, remember um, in the early sections of Halloween when Laurie Strode is babysitting the two children, um, The Thing from Another World is actually the black and white sci-fi film that's playing on the television and boring them senseless. Yeah. So that's a sort of in-joke on his part. No, no, go back to the podcast if you want to know our thoughts on Halloween. Um, the thing that Carpenter... The reason he wanted to remake it was that he said it was a very interesting story about paranoia, but the the limitations in terms of budget and effects in the 1950s meant that when you got to the monster, it it wasn't the shape-shifting thing that he needed it to be, and it, it kind of took the story closer in the territory of Frankenstein, because it was effectively an actor with a massive blob of plastic on his head and a bolt through his head. foil. Yes, yes it, it probably was. In the was best tradition of Doctor Who monsters <laughs> and 50s B-movies. Yes, <laughs> it probably was Baker foil. Well, yeah, so his version goes much closer to the original short story and actually has a screenplay written by Burt Lancaster's son, Bill Lancaster, um, oh, yeah. I think went on as a fairly good uh, screenwriter. So he had, with $50 million, he basically said, okay, we've got the script, we've got the story, now we've got the, the resources to actually make the film the way it should have been the first time round. Yeah. Um, you can't discuss the thing, really, without starting at the special effects, because they are the thing that makes it most memorable, and they are extraordinary. They're created by Rob Bertine, who would later do the effects for the, uh, the Hollywood films of Paul Verhoeven, so Robocop, Total Recall, yeah. and Basic Instinct. I was watching Basic Instinct again the other day, and um, there's that, and you know the opening credits, where it's all sort of mirrored glass, and you yes, can, you can yes. vaguely see Sharon Stone yeah. doing, going about her business. Um, and then Rob Bertine's name comes up, like, um, no, makeup supervisor or something like that, and it's like, well, this is an erotic thriller. Why do we need a, a maker guy? And then the ice pick comes in. Yeah. Oh, that's why it's going right <laughs> through his face. Okay, thank you, Rob. So, so Robertine was on this. He was supervised by Stan Winston, who would later do the effects for the Terminator films, particularly yeah. the first Terminator, which, if you and that's you no know, very good stop motion animatronics, particularly in the, towards the end. Um, I think Winston actually designed the dog creature at the beginning, but all the rest is Bertine's work. It was one of the very first horror films alongside. Well, depending on which order they were released, The Howling and American Werewolf in London, which utilised kind of latex rubber and animatronics to their fullest potential. And there is, and sort of Rick Baker and Rob Bertine had sort of trained more or less alongside each other. They were part of this wave yeah. of makeup artists who came through in the, in the early 70s and basically made, took the B-movie into sort of A-movie territory in yeah. terms of its effects. And there's an interesting documentary, I think, called Masters of Horror, in which John Landis talks about the history of makeup. Um... Bertine worked, because they had so little time, I think they shot it in less than six weeks, and Bertine was working around the clock to create all these different monsters and set it up. Carpenter worked him so hard that after shooting Rap, the first thing he did was check Rob Bertine into hospital with exhaustion, and he didn't work again for six months because Carpenter just pushed him so hard, saying, look, we, got, we need another monster on set now, come on, Rob, <laughs> get the glucosey stuff on it, no, let's, make, let's shoot this. So, in spite of the fact that, you no know, Carpenter worked him very hard, I think it was worth it, because the designs of the thing are genuinely scary. I mean, it doesn't matter, even if you hadn't situated them in the drama, you just have to look at them and go, oh, that's really creepy. So, I mean, you've got things like, there's, you know, the skulls that sort of twist and crack, which are like, um, you remember us talking about Gerald Scarf in Pink Floyd the War? Yes, yeah. Well, imagine his drawing crossed with the paintings of Edvard Munch. 
with the <laughs> scream. It's it's that sort of thing of you know faces twisting and bending in ways yeah. that you don't really expect. It's be a real labour of love being a sort of makeup artist for these type of films, must not it? And being the actor's mind, and it's sort of you know several hours to be made up, several hours to be unmade up. Yes, so. the, yeah. I mean, there's a story about um, the transformation scene in American Werewolf, which was had makeup effects by Rick Baker, and he actually won. They had to create the Academy Award of Visual Effects to recognise his work for that. So we, but there was a story that they were doing all the the different effects with, you know, where the 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 jaw extends out, or the the legs kind of grow, or the 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 spine arches up. And it was off, it was a case that Robert, that Rick Baker, sorry, would spend three months, you know, getting the hydraulic ram to just push it up in just the right way, yeah, or to get the the, the face to bulge out. And then John Landis would do one take, say, okay, that's finished. I spent three months doing that, and you shot <laughs> it for less than a minute, and all of it, and then it all gets taken. A lot of it was destroyed, but a lot of it is yeah. still in the museum, including you can go to I think it's California in the the National Horror Museum and see the asymmetrical head of David Norton, and it's still there. And it looks that absolutely sounds fantastic. Sounds the sort of place you'd enjoy going to. I think I might. <laughs> that's 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 my summer holiday sorted. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean the the multiple effect shots in the film are really good. I mean. I don't want to give everything away, but just in terms of setting up set pieces, it, it is quite inventive. So you have things like jaws appearing in a dead man's chest. You have the head spider, which is the most famous creation, kind of head sprouting legs and scuttling yeah. across the floor. Behind, uh, and it, you've got to be effing kidding. And, uh, <laughs> and then sort of a strange monster with four different tentacles rising out of the man's stomach. It, it's really, It's really twisted and strange, and you can't talk about this without feeling slightly creeped out so yeah. no no apologies the thing about the most is that it isn't just a case of you sitting there thinking that's really good makeup and therefore i'm scared because the there's two things first of all carpenter shoots it with a great sense of rhythm you don't get any chance to stop and see if you can see all the joins you know where yeah. the, you know there's because like the head sequence where it's just it's effectively a piece of rubber on a remote control car being driven across the floor but also you no know, it's shot by dean cundy who was um Carpenter's long-term cinematographer late, later went on to shoot Apollo 13. So, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. And, um, I mean, when you're effectively shooting rubber on wheels or this thing called carbapool, which is the stuff they put in sort of Twinkies and chewing gum to make it yeah. stretchy, you have to light it in a very specific way so that it doesn't just like, like rubber. And Dean Cundy does an absolutely brilliant job of, you know, getting the, the right balance of colour and putting yeah. the right amount of food colouring in the stuff so it doesn't just look like latex. There is an obvious comparison with Alien in the safari so as there are some similarities. Um, both of them have a central idea about you know, a creature which is emerging after thousands of years, feeding on humans to survive, and its weakness is incineration. Of course, if you go through the Alien series, um, by the time you get to the third one, the use of fire is actually quite prominent, because there's yeah. that sequence at the end of Alien 3 of Sigourney... Well, in one of the versions of Alien 3, of Sigourney Weaver jumping into the furnace as the alien bursts out of her chest, and it's yeah. you know, tied up with the whole Oedipal thing. Uh, both of them are obviously groundbreaking in their design. I mean, you can sort of take your pick between Robertine and H Giga because they're equally strange and unusual. The difference, however, which sort of illuminates what makes the thing distinctive is in terms of what the creature represents and how it's presented. So I'll come to those in turn. In terms of what it represents, I mean, in Alien, as I think you'll probably agree, a lot of it is to do with sex. Yes, a lot of yeah. the, and the, the, the creature has you know, got a very phallic head with that inner set of teeth that comes yes. out. You don't need to talk about it much to understand what it means. And the film is it's it's a physical representation of the male fear of pregnancy which also links back a little bit to a razor head if you're a david lynch fan and the general fear of bodily violation which is that i don't want that thing in me yeah and yeah. no john hurts chest bursting open in the thing it is also about bodily violation there's no question about that but it is also about paranoia and the thing is 
the physicalization of that natural suspicion we have towards people who are different to ourselves. And there are, although it's primarily a film about just a bunch of people who happen to sort of turn against each other and get completely paranoid, there are quite strong racial and political undercurrents in it. There's a, a moment in the film where one of the, uh, the black members of the crew is, is kind of slumming it in the quarters and he starts playing a Stevie Wonder record. And the uptight uh, doctor, played by Wilfred Brimley, says, oh, will you turn that nonsense off? I can't stand it. And there's a whole thing about this, the inhabitants of the base are like a cross-section of American society, and it's it's a way of saying, you know, this society is like a melting pot, and it's going to yeah. be torn apart from within, as opposed to being attacked, which, you know, the threat outside. The closest comparison with the thing in terms of that is, did you ever see... Um, the 70s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yes. With Donald yes, Sutherland. Yes. We're directed by Philip Kaufman, who's a really underrated director. And there is something about... We, we actually talked about it when uh, Paul and I discussed They Live, which is his age and age ago, but you can, hack it, you can check it out on the podcast. There is something about the way the thing imitates people, which reminds you of the pod people, in the sense that, you know, the Kaufman's version famously has the scream, by which, you know, the pod people kind of scream if there's a human in their midst, and there's that fantastic yeah. ending with Donald Sutherland doing just that. Um, so, and they have a sense of distance to them, so that although, although it's very difficult to spot who the thing is and who isn't, once they start sort of looking at you a bit funny, they think, okay, they're all doomed. <laughs> so, so that's about, that's the difference in terms of how the creature's represented. We now yeah. come on to the, how it, how it's, how it's presented to the audience. And in Alien, famously, it's, it's withheld. You know, the, the sense of intense claustrophobia and paranoia, it comes from sort of little glimpses. So, you know, you see the foot or the hand or the yeah. teeth or something like that, and your imagination do the rest, and eventually your projection will catch up yeah. with reality. And that's a very, well, very well-known trick. I mean, that you can look back to things like The Haunting, the original yeah. version, or something like that, or The Innocence. I mean, but you know, Ridley Scott, I think, did a better job than either yeah. of those, just because he knows his stuff. The thing kind of goes completely the opposite direction. There was a wonderful quote by Clive Barker, who's a horror novelist who later directed films like Nightbreed and Hellraiser, which very much were about putting the monsters on screen. And he was interviewed about, um, about the time of Hellraiser, saying, you know, why did you put your monsters on screen? And he said something along the lines of, I hate that school of filmmaking whereby in the first hour you see a foot, in the second hour you see a hand, <laughs> and then you see the monster for three seconds see at the end monster. before it gets blown up by an atom bomb. Yeah. And his idea was, you no, know, you put the monsters on screen so that the audience can understand what they're physicalizing, and in the case of Barker's work, you actually start to embrace them, because there yeah. are things about Hellraiser which are quite subversive. Carpenter had a sort of bet with Stephen King around the same time as, you know, how much can we get away with on screen, which might explain why the film didn't do quite so well, even you know, yeah. even taking out the fact that it was released pretty much along the same time as E.T. And it did push the conventions of what you could physically do, both technically and in terms of what was deemed acceptable. But as I think, as I've tried to make a number of times when discussing Carpenter's career, the amount of, well, not specifically gore, but the amount of physical horror on screen, it's not gratuitous, it's not salacious, it's not saying let's make the audience feel really, really horrible and we'll enjoy it. It's a, it actually has substance because it's about the physicalization of paranoia, it's about difference, it's about racism, and so therefore you can't just say that, well, you're just being gory for the sake of it because Carpenter's a lot smarter than that. Yeah. In order for the film to work with these fantastic effects, there has to be a sort of proper characters to undercut the story. I mean, it's, you can't just have it as cardboard cutout teenagers running around in their underwear. Well, for starters, it's Antarctica, so it'd be yeah, too cold. Um, so, Carp when Carpenter's doing the more sort of expository scenes in which you see, for instance, a computer predicting how long it would take for the thing to get off Antarctica and affect the rest of the world, he shoots those with a very 
deliberately tense way of doing it and that a lot of this is down to the soundtrack which kind of combines the string section which was written by Ennio Morricone who of course did yeah. you know the the great western so also did the score for Exorcist to the Heretic it combines that with his very simple synthesizers kind of works I and mean, so it's it's unusual in Carpenter's scores because he didn't write all of it so on the one hand you've got Ennio Morricone kind of going and then in the background you've just got dum-dum dum-dum <laughs> there's a fair bit of that yes, yes. and no, the beginning of it is really really tense the film is brilliant at sort of throwing you off the scent I mean when I talked about the X film earlier on I said one of the problems with it is you've got too many characters so you don't quite know who to focus on in the case of the thing that's actually one of its strengths because yes. you think okay I've got to be watching all these people and who's the thing and who isn't and and McCready acts like a, a private eye for the film in the sense that he's sort of leading the audience in and he's the one who said okay we're going to do the blood test we're going to yeah. decide this is how we decide who's the thing and who isn't but there's constant questions in your mind of could he be the thing and do we yeah. believe him and is the relation he is the information he's receiving reliable and on at least two occasions there are people whom you think yes they're absolutely the thing sooner or later we're going to test them we're going to find out and then they turn out not to be and vice versa so it's absolutely brilliant at throwing you off everybody gets screwed up yes well at least yeah at least until the end i mean there's a fantastic there's a fantastic comparison with the shining insofar as i mean carpenter obviously used the panaglide or the steadicam on halloween and that became one of his trademarks yeah. but the base itself looks like a sort of more downbeat version of the Overlook Hotel in the sense that there's lots of long corridors and it's very quiet and yeah. it's very you get a sense of eeriness and so it which reinforces that non-existence of trust and there's the great line from uh, from Kurt Russell when he's saying you know when there's no one left to trust Blair why don't you trust in the Lord <laughs> which brings us on to the ending um, it was criticised at the time for being, well, no pun intended, a bit cold and uh, and a very nihilistic. And they did shoot an alternative ending in which, you know, because the, the ending is it's McCready and one of the others, they've blown up the base yeah. and they're kind of sitting around in the snow wondering whether the thing is going to reveal itself and who's, which one is the thing, which one isn't, yeah. and are either of them the thing or have they just brought their own end upon themselves. Carpenter shot an alternative ending in which McCready was picked up by another chopper and taken to a hospital and tested um, negative for the thing, which is a bit like the alternative ending to The Shining in which um, Danny and... Um, Shelley Duvall end up in a hospital and the doctor saying, you know, everything's going to be all right. But of course, yeah. that ending wouldn't have worked because the ending of The Shining yeah. is fantastic. In the end, however, they didn't preview that because the ending that they'd had, which was downbeat, let's face it, mm -hmm. it just worked so brilliantly with the film. And it also refers back to things like, there's an IT50s B movie called The Blob. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yes, um, yes. For people who don't know, it's uh, basically there's a blob that's consuming everything and they, they find that they can't kill it, so they freeze it and drop it in the Arctic and then it ends with a big question mark coming onto the screen. Yeah, but the dodgy, the dodgy special effects on that one have as you, well. Have you seen the 80s remake of The Blob? No, I haven't. That's actually quite good, although it does look people like people are being consumed by walking jelly uh, so that's even worse special effects the ending of the thing it does convey the desperation and the futility of the characters and you sit there expecting there to be this one last twist where one of the characters in the manner of body snatchers screams and then it cuts to black yeah. but instead it just lingers and then the score comes in so that you've got this mixture of absolutely icy fear but also a sadness because you know that either way both of these characters are going to die and it's a question of is the thing going to emerge and eat one of them or are yeah. they just going to slowly freeze and end up like well like jack torrance 
So it could, it could have almost have set up a sequel. Well, it could have done, and we're going to talk. We'll talk about the prequel in just a second. Um, so it isn't quite a masterpiece because there are little bits in the exterior shots. We know when they've locked Wilford Brimley in the shed, in which it does start to drag a little bit and from a personal point of view when everything starts blowing up i do start to turn off yeah. not because i have anything against action movies but because that's a very generic way to sort of finish things off but it's on a par with invasion of the body snatchers it's carpenter's second best film after halloween and i think it's almost on a par with the original alien although not quite for the reasons i've set out yeah so do you want to talk about the prequel why not Basically, there is a prequel being made by, uh, I can't remember his name, but he's a, he's a Danish director, um, which is taking the same source material, but setting up the story, so it's, it's the, looking at the story of the Norwegian team who found the alien in the first right, place yeah. before the Americans arrived. And my main reaction is, well, why would you bother? Because you're essentially going to be redoing all the stuff yeah. in the first film, and with I mean, they're having reshoots at the moment, so it's... It's, it's going to segue into the second film, and presumably you know what the end's going to be as well. It's a bit, little bit like the old Star Wars prequels, isn't it? Yeah, it's, that's, you that's knew a what had, You knew what the end had to be, because you knew where episode four took off from. Yeah, you, you, you can just sit there in the middle of episode three, look, just, look, Anakin, just put the bucket on your head already. We've been here six and a half hours. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the only thing that's interesting about the prequel is it's got a supporting role for Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who is the, uh, the lead who is the heroine in Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So otherwise, it's, it's pointless. And go and see, I was going to say the original, but the, the original's the thing from another world. So go and see John Carpenter's The Thing before the prequel comes out, because it'll be at least a hundred times better. Yes. And you're saying that it may not be the greatest, because they're having to reshoot. Yeah, they, any film which, which involves kind of last-minute reshoots, you know is in trouble, because right. it, you, when you look at the finished result, the lighting and stuff won't match up, so it will look like a patchwork. Well, having been uh, thoroughly frightened for the last 20 minutes, we'll take a little break and then have a look. What else is on? Thanks for tuning in to the district's newest radio station, Lionheart Radio. So, we're here in two weeks' time, because we're having a, a week off. What are we doing in two weeks' time? We shall do uh, Westworld, um, Michael Crichton's debut feature film, in which nothing could possibly go wrong. Right. Go wrong. Go wrong. <laughs> go wrong. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. It's the right. obvious gag. Right. So, quite a lot of uh, new releases this week, so uh, let's get on with them, shall we? I think we better. Um, I've got a funny feeling you may not like the first one, because it's got 3D in the title. Green uh, Lantern 3D. Don't prejudge, Richard. Um, latest comic book adaptation uh, featuring characters from DC Comics, who haven't had a very good run, to be honest, in the world of recent adaptations. The last DC comic adaptation was Jonah Hex, which didn't go at all well. Directed by Martin Campbell, who is most famous for his involvement in the Bond series, because he directed GoldenEye and most recently and Casino Royale. And he, I think he's... And they did those very well. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's one of the directors who you kind of bring him in from the outside and he says, okay, this works and this doesn't, let's kind of kick it up a gear. And I think, you no, know, Goldmine and Casino Royale are really good. You know, for all that I've slagged off the Bond series yeah. on this show in the past, yeah. I think that what he did with those it's films got was better really as it's gone on, yes. Yeah, I mean, certainly, in the, I mean, I think that the Brosnan series sort of declined after Campbell left, but no, like I say, those two films are really good. He most recently made Edge of Darkness, which had, which was based on his own TV series. Sorry, yeah, did so, I... You, so here's a scary thought, James Bond in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Um... <laughs> So, it's starring Ryan Reynolds. The story is, um, there, sorry, you've completely thrown me off with that thought. Um, there is an intergalactic peacekeeping force called the Green Lanterns who uphold peace in the galaxy. Yeah. Sound familiar? Yeah. Um, they have to fight against this creature called the Parallax, 
also sounds familiar. And they, to do this, they summon the first human ever to join the Lanterns in the shape of Ryan Reynolds, who's this, this ex-fighter pilot who now just wants to be an ordinary guy. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, well. so first off, it's deeply derivative. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, people protecting the galaxy, it's the Jedi, although that's arguably slightly unfair because the DC comics do predate George Lucas's bit, work. Yeah. yeah, so, no, it's, it's yeah. a question of what influences yeah. and what rips off. Um, there's also sequences like, um, there's a sequence of Reynolds being taught how to fight, which is like the... You remember in the first Matrix when Morpheus is teaching Neo how to fight in the, in the room yeah. which hasn't got any gravity? So it's a bit like that. As a whole, however, the thing it reminded me most of is Battlefield Earth. And I don't know if you ever saw Battlefield Earth out of the first time we're on... Yes, Houston. I did, yes, yes. And did you think it was terrible? Yes. Yes, because it is. And, but it's that whole thing, the problem with Battlefield Earth, aside from the fact, you know, badly directed, badly acted, next to no script, it took itself far too seriously. Yeah. I mean, unlike something like, well to bring it up again, Flash Gordon, yes. which absolutely knew that it was ridiculous and just played it for yes. you know, in laughs. Yeah. Battlefield Earth wanted to be this deeply serious film about all these things going on and Barry Pepper doing these wonderful speeches and you just think, it's science fiction with John Travolta walking around with about <laughs> half a ton of dreadlocks on his head. I cannot take this seriously. Yeah. So. It's a very, very thin story disguised by bucket loads of CGI. I mean, it does look like a film which has pigged out on its visual effects budget. There's a story that when they took it, they, they sort of cut half of the film and they took it to Comic-Con last summer, which is you know, the, the big comic yeah. book convention, and, they said, and their, their response was, we like the story, but the suit's rubbish. So what they did was they went back and CG'd all the people's clothing, including the very masks that Ryan Reynolds is wearing. And you just think... if Yeah, I mean... I don't mind CGI in and of itself, but you can build better costumes. You yeah. don't need to do it with computers. And then you've got stuff like, you know, Tim Robbins is in it very briefly doing, <gasps> like, the John Voight role in Transformers, basically turning up, saying stuff that no one can understand and picking yeah. up his check. And it's just depressing, frankly, that, you know, I mean, Ryan Reynolds is a good actor and Martin Campbell's a very good director, but this is just Not their rubbish, right. frankly. Bad teacher. Um, speaking of rubbish, um, new comedy starring uh, Cameron Diaz and Justin Timberlake and directed by Jake Kasdan, who most recently made um, Walk Hard, the Jimmy Cox story, which was like a parody. A bit sub-spinal tap, but it was okay in places. Um, the story is Cameron Diaz plays a teacher who doesn't give an F, both literally and figuratively, because she doesn't care, but she also, you know, about her class, she's at a dead end in her life. But one day she meets attractive new supply teacher in the shape of Justin Timberlake, who just happens to be single. And As she would be. Yeah. As he would be, and because Justin Timberlake, of course, can't get a girl. Yes. Duh. Um, so she wants to impress him, and so she competes with a rival teacher played by uh, Lucy Punch to um, to get a prize for the best or the most improved class, and she starts becoming a proper teacher and finds yeah. out something about herself. Again, it's not very good. It's a half-decent idea, which is, you know, yeah. teachers competing for the affection of supply, which we've kind of seen before, but it's shambolically put together, and the performances are quite caricatured. I mean, Cameron Diaz... She's at the point in her career now when she doesn't really need the money, and it's interesting whether or not... Because she's kind of got into just doing roles which play on her looks, which arguably she's been doing for a lot of her career. I mean, you look back to something like The Mask, which made her famous, in which the whole thing was that big panning shot in which they go up her in a red dress, and then the yeah. sax music starts, you think, okay, straight to video erotic thriller. Um, so... She is completely dolled up and overacting in this film. Justin Timberlake is just himself, you know, walking around with the curly hair and being handsome and being Justin Timberlake. Yeah, I can't quite imagine him playing a teacher. No, I mean, he, the thing is, he was good in The Social Network. He was really yeah. good in that. But he started, it's, it's almost as though he's decided to squander that goodwill instantly because he was last in Yogi Bear, which, you know, I think, you know, he made a reason. It's not abysmal. 
I mean, there are a couple of laughs in it, and there's a good supporting performance by Lucy Punch, who, like a lot of her film roles, gets underused because she was recently in Woody Allen's film You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. It's, again, it's just a bit rubbish, and it's not as funny as it needs to be. Right. Rather better film than The Beaver. Now, this is an odd one. Um, it's the new film directed by and starring Jodie Foster, and it's the first film she's directed since Home for the Holidays, which was about 16 years ago. Did you see Home for the Holidays when it first came out? Uh, sounds familiar. Yeah, it's, it's the one, it's, you know, a family coming together for Christmas and, you know, they're all kind of fighting it. It's, it's the one in which, uh, Robert Downey Jr. plays the sane one who's also openly gay. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. no, I do remember it was, that. It was, yes, it was, it was, yes. it was, I think it was the last thing he did before he went into that sort of downward spiral yeah. involving yeah. cocaine, although he has obviously since come out of it and I like Robert Downey Jr. So, the story is, um, Jodie Foster and Mel Gibson are married. If you can get past that. Um, he plays a character called Walter Black, who was a once great toy salesman, but he's got depressed, he's down on his yeah. luck, he's, his business ventures have been failing, and he and his wife are more or less separated. They're not divorced, but they're getting yeah. divorced. And he's, he, his life starts to turn around when he's walking along the street and he finds this, um, this old beaver toy in a, a dumpster, or trash can, whatever you want to call it, um, and he, he starts talking to the beaver, and the beaver talks back to him in a Cockney accent. And he kind of uses this as a kind of therapeutic device to start getting back with his family, so putting all the negative emotions on the beaver character. Yeah. And then he starts getting his success back, and it's a question of, you know, is he now the beaver character, or is he him, and is the beaver just a personality that he's invented to make himself a better guy? It's a very earnest film. I mean, Jodie Foster has a reputation for that in her in her directorial work. She often makes films about families going through a hard time. Yeah. Not in the sense of Noah Baumbach, in which I just don't care, but in the sense that there is something faintly genuine about it. And the, the cast are pretty good. I mean, whatever you think about Mel Gibson on a personal level, he has still got that frightening charisma, although you might find him intimidating. For the most part, that's a good thing. And although there are comparisons with... No, Senor, Senor Wentes or the South Park episode about Cartman having Jennifer Lopez on his hand and the real Jennifer yeah. Lopez turning up and beating him up. I think that it just about gets away with the, the, the slightly absurd idea at the start of it. It does lose its way a little when Walter Black starts to get his success back and it's the question of, you know, is he going to go with his job or with his family? But the cast are very good. I mean, Jodie Foster and Mel Gibson are very good screen presences. There's also a supporting role for Jennifer Lawrence, who's in right. the new X-Men film, was also yeah. in Winter's Bone, in which she was the best thing in what I thought was rather unremarkable, but she's going to be terrific. So I think it's definitely one to catch and, you know, put your personal feelings about Mel Gibson aside. I mean, I think, you know, for all, I don't agree with his personal views, but he is a very good actor, and yeah. it, he deserves another hit on his hands. Right, another good one, Life in the Day. Which is another interesting experiment. Um, it's a documentary directed by Kevin MacDonald, who made Touching the Void, and yeah. most recently made The Eagle, which you liked. Oh, yes. yes. Um, produced by Ridley Scott, so that's yes. my side of the bargain. Um, the interesting thing is about how this was made. Um, on July the 24th last year, um, Ridley Scott posted a video on YouTube in which he said... Um, I and Kevin McDonald are making this film, but we want you to shoot it. So go out on this day, of 24th of July, take your video cameras, shoot whatever you like, whether it's people, places, you know, wars, whatever. Send the videos to us, and then we will condense that footage down into a documentary really about, good. about one life on the, yeah. on the day of Earth. So they had something like 80,000 videos submitted. Incredible. Four and a half thousand hours of footage, and it's been condensed down to, I think it's an hour and a half, two hours. So as an editing job, fantastic. Yeah. Oscar-worthy. Um, but it's, I mean, there is the 
the obvious fear with that sort of project is that you do get into just mushy sentimentalism about, oh, we are the world and we're all a little yeah. bit this and a little bit that. But for the most part, you don't get that. And the trailer actually, although you, although the film doesn't have, no, in inverted commas, characters or yeah. plot, you do feel a real sense of affinity for these people on screen, all of whom are listed as sort of co-directors in the credits. Yeah. And you just get a sense of real affinity for the people on screen and for the experiences going through. Like, there's a sequence in the trailer where there, it's someone interviewing a, a war veteran, I think from the Vietnam War, and asks him, well, what are you afraid of? And he says, no, politics is the thing I fear most of all. And no, it could don't, be a very... Don't we all? It's a, it's, <laughs> and that's the sort of line that could be so very cliched and sentimental, but it actually yes. comes across as quite poignantly. So yeah. you might have to travel to see this, and in the end, its role will probably be as a sort of time capsule project rather than a film yeah. in itself. But it's a very good idea. I think that, no, Ridley Scott's a very good producer. Kevin MacDonald obviously has form in the documentary tradition, yeah. and it's one of the films of the week. Very difficult one to edit, I should imagine. That's yeah, a very, took a long yes. time, hence why they shot it last year and then... Slightly, um, less serious, uh, parallel. The, uh, Scottish Rugby Union last year did this thing on the, uh, the world's longest pass, and it was asking, uh, people to shoot videos themselves passing a rugby ball which they then cut into, you know, like a hundred different people uh, passing the ball down the line ah. all around the world. And it was very, very cleverly edited as well. And some, some real sort of, uh, you know, classic characters as well as big rugby players. They would get in uh, TV stars, singers, you know, two-year-old kids, uh, grannies, <laughs> yeah, the whole lot. And it was uh, very, uh, very cleverly done. And um, it sort of really caught the imagination of the, uh, the Scottish rugby public. Yeah, is that on YouTube? I'm sure it will be. Yes. I, shall have, I shall have to check that Definitely out. Definitely have a look at it will be on the Scottish Rugby Union website. I'm sure because they were the sponsors of it. Very, very clever. Great. Right. Patish. Potish. Potish. Yes. Um, I guess this is an English film. This is a French comedy, um, directed by uh, François Ozon and starring our old friend Gérard Depardieu and uh, Catherine Deneuve, who, of course, for people of a certain age, is best known for being the uh, the lead in Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which yes. is still really scary. Um, set in the late 1970s, Deneuve plays the, the Potish which is uh, French for trophy wife, of a rich factory owner. Uh, his workers go on strike while he's on holiday in uh, some sun-drenched spot, which is probably the south of France. Um, she steps in to take, uh, take control of the factory. Turns out she can actually run it better than he can, and when he comes back, there's all, <laughs> sorts, of, there's all sorts of intermarital stuff going on, and meanwhile, she's getting off with Gérard Depardieu, who actually values her, and there's a sequence in the trailer where they go clubbing in a disco, which is, frankly, a bit embarrassing. It's, it is a completely frothy concoction. I mean, it is, it's light-hearted, it's, it doesn't have much to say outside of its central characters but it's good fun i mean i suppose there are vague comparisons with um made in dagenham for last year in the sense that it's about women showing they can do a job every bit as good as men but obviously it doesn't have the same intentions of nigel cole's film it's worth seeing for the performances i mean Deneuve, for all the, the unusual choices she's made she is a fantastic screen presence i mean obviously she's great in repulsion there's a very unusual vampire film she was in in the early 80s with david bowie called the hunger yeah in which they both play sort of vampires are thousands of years old and it's it's a, it doesn't really work but the, her performance is pretty good so like i say it's like it's frothy it's like a cappuccino you know you won't remember it much when it's over but it's good fun so that's going to be Tyneside, i guess i think it is Tyneside. Yeah. yes so uh, seeing thought of gerard in a nightclub he's a bit old for that isn't he well i'll leave that up to him <laughs> right oldest swinger in town finally <laughs> the messenger yeah we'll just do this briefly um it's a brief theatrical release of an oscar nominated film which actually got nominated at the 2010 oscars so it's taken ages and ages for it to get european distribution i mean that often happens with 
with foreign language films is that they'll they'll sort of get nominated in the year that they come out and then it'll take about nine ten maybe even twelve months to get release over here not because of you know anything wrong with the film but simply because it's very difficult to get that kind of films distributed yeah. in a multiplex age um so it's written and directed by owen Moverman and starring ben foster woody harrelson who is still most famous for the people versus larry flint he's also in no country for a man he's a very good actor and samantha morton and it's about an iraq war veteran who takes on the new role of a messenger which is that he's the guy who goes back to the families of the soldiers who've been killed and sort of passes on the news and it's about the the bonds and the relationships that he forms with that again like the beaver it's quite earnest in the sense that it's, it's wanting to make an emotional point and wearing its heart on its sleeve and it's I think the reason it got overlooked was the fact that it came out in the same year as The Hurt Locker, which was about, you know, a film about soldiers going into, I think it was Afghanistan, but it might have been Iraq. And that obviously won Best Picture, and Catherine Bigelow won Best Director, and that was, the, that was the story of that year's Oscars. So I think that's the reason it's got overshadowed. It isn't anything remarkable, and uh, like, like, um, like Green Lantern, in the end, the story is quite thin, although it's better than Green Lantern. So... It's good, it's worth seeing for the performances, but don't expect a masterpiece. I mean, it, it, it'll probably be on a par with The Hurt Locker, because I think that was a bit overrated. Right, so, our recommendations for this week, uh, The Beaver. Beaver and Life in a Day. I if mean, you can find it. Yeah, Life in a Day, you'll probably have to travel, because I don't think the time set are doing it, but uh, The Beaver is showing at the gate in Newcastle, so you'll be able to catch it there. Right, okay. I'm surprised the Tyneside's not showing it, or is that something they'll... They've got a lot of re-releases going on at the moment, because they're doing the re-release of Apocalypse Now and Taxi Driver, so they've got a couple of full screens. Right. And just a quick reminder, once again, of the local films this week. We've got uh, Oranges and Sunshine at the Playhouse on Wednesday night. We've got Water for Elephants at the Maltings in Berwick on Monday afternoon at one o'clock. We've got uh, Nosferatu the Vampire, uh, the Werner Herzog uh, horror, um, that's on Wednesday evening at 8.30. And two box office numbers, Annick 510785 for the Playhouse and 01289 for the Maltings. Thank you, Daniel. That's right. And just one last thing before we go. If you haven't already, go and see Senna, because it's great. Yes. And everybody I've spoken to who's been to see it has enjoyed it as well. Yeah. We're back in two, two weeks' time. Sport from 8 till 10 and the movie hour from 10 to 11. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.